this is Mike McGinn, and this is You, Me, Us Now. And it's a podcast about people that try to change things, who they are, what they're working on, and how the hell do they get involved in this anyway. So my story is that I was a neighborhood and environmental advocate who just got deeper and deeper into trying to change things. And one day I decided to run for mayor, and I won. And then four years later, I lost. But I had an awesome trip, and I met lots of other people who tried to change things. And I I personally became really inspired by that journey as mayor, learning of people in my own community that were working to change things. And so this is a little bit of a shift, because on this episode of You, Me, Us Now, I've had the opportunity to meet an awesome delegation of people who are in town due to an organization called ELAW. And ELAW is a network of environmental advocates around the world who all support each other. And today, I'm going to interview Diana McCauley of the Jamaican Environmental Trust, who's going to tell about the work that she's been doing in Jamaica. Now, it's actually kind of dangerous to allow me to pick the music, and I always try to figure out something that has meaning somehow. So the song I chose this Today was something called San Diego Bounce. It was by a West Coast jazz man be called Harold Land. What does that have to do with Jamaica? Well, you know, the Jamaican DJs would send people out into, the, into America to find the really cool songs, and this one actually became a big hit in Jamaica, and some credit it with being uh, the basis for ska and reggae, which was its own musical form. And our guest today, Diana McCauley, came to Seattle, got an MPA, which apparently played a role in her life of becoming an activist. And we were talking just before the show started, and she was in the private sector, working in insurance for years, and one day she decided she needed to become engaged with the environment. Started with education, one thing led to another, including learning more about the role of law in changing things. And she is known uh, and referred to in Jamaica as that woman or that environmental woman. And as I understand it, that's not always positive, is it, Diana? No, in fact, it's, you know, oh, God, there's that woman. (laughs) (laughs) So it sounds like there's an emphasis on the woman on that, not just the that and the environmental. I think that that is is up there. But woman, yes, it's still a pretty patriarchal society in Jamaica. So for a woman... To speak out, you know, and we have a word, feisty, which is kind of based on your feisty, but it's more nuanced than that. I'm definitely feisty in Jamaica. (laughs) So tell me about uh, the Jamaica Environmental Trust. So essentially, as you said, I was working in the private sector and I had a house guest and I took the house guest to a beach where my parents used to take me as a child. It's right on the doorstep of the city of Kingston. Very beautiful. You can people go there to watch the sunset. And so I took this young man there, and when we drove up onto the beach, I discovered it had become an illegal garbage dump. And I hadn't been there. I hadn't been there for many years. And, you know, when you're standing in front of a problem and you think to yourself, someone should do something, um, I decided that the someone should really be me. What did you decide to do? So that was the moment. I, I basically just, I didn't know anything about the environment, and I started talking to people. I was aware that there were people in Jamaica working on the environment, so I just called them up and made appointments to see them. And eventually I came across a man who was in Jamaica. Um, his name was Dr. Omera Silva. He was in Jamaica on secondment from the Pan American Health Organization. And I asked him if I could go into the field with him. And he took me to the three sewage plants in Kingston who, that did not work, and the dump, the Riverton City dump, which, by the way, today is burning. 
And I lived all my life in Kingston. I was born there and I had never been to these places. And I was absolutely shocked by the state they were in and the fact that their untreated sewage or partially treated sewage was going straight into the sea in one case and Kingston Harbor in the other two cases. And I took pictures of these places and then I invited my friends and business colleagues to see the pictures and we decided to form an environmental agency. None of us knew anything about it, but that's what we did. So tell us, tell us how, how, did that ad, how did you do that advocacy at first then? You, when you were talking about that, you took pictures, you showed it to people. What, what was the theory about how you were going to change things? So, so initially we thought the job was, oh, well, people didn't know, just as I had not known. So if we simply told everybody that, oh, by the way, do you know the sewage plants in Kingston don't work and the dump is medieval, everyone would go, oh, gosh, no, we didn't know and it would all change. But of course, it's not so simple. Why is it not so simple? Because people in some ways don't want to know and in some ways feel disempowered. So they, once they're told, they may still feel there's nothing that they can do. And in a place like Jamaica, there are many other issues that are competing for people's attention. You know, a lot of people who are clinging to the margins, survival issues. So, you know, Jamaica is a very indebted country. So there are many things that are competing for national attention. And the environment comes way down the scale of things that people are worried about. But at the time, we were young parents, you know. And so we thought, well, education, right? Surely if you educate people, then that will, that will be something that will move them to care and move them to act. So for the first 10 years, we designed and implemented education programs in Jamaican schools. And we just went into the schools. I mean, now I look back on it and think, oh, my gosh. We just, what do you think when you say, oh, because, my gosh? You, know, you have to get opinion. You have to get permission. You know, you have to get permission from the Ministry of Education and you have to make sure you're in line with the curriculum and all of that. But we didn't. We just you just went on went in. into the schools, called up a teacher, said, would you like an environmental program? They said, yeah, sounds good. And we just started to develop environmental programs in schools. We started in nine and at its height, the school's environment program that we run was eventually in a third of Jamaican schools. So we learned as we went along and changed it, and eventually it had a focus on teachers. So we thought if we could improve teachers' knowledge of the environment and their comfort with teaching the subjects and taught them how to do a good field trip and you know took them to places they right. probably had never been, that that would have a big multiplier effect. So for most of the time we've been doing that, it's been focused on teachers. I've, I've always thought that in the United States, having Earth Day was in some ways a watershed moment, right? Kids that have grown up since Earth Day and the younger generation seem to have much stronger sensibilities about the environment than uh, people who didn't. And I, I guess I was right on the edge of that. I seem to remember the first Earth Day. I was 55, I'm 55 years old. On the other hand, you can talk about education, like, like the thought that immediately popped into my head is, is climate change. Well, by golly, if you told everybody that what we're doing would lead to absolute, you know, potential disaster for people on Earth, well, surely we'd change, right? People just need to know that. And now we have a U.S. Senator, Senator Inhofe, I think it was, shut up with a snowball. Look, I have a snowball from outside the Capitol. Global warming isn't real. So clearly education alone doesn't get you where you want to go. No, it's a necessary, but it's an insufficient condition. You yeah. need other things. And we, of course, we realized that too, because, you know, so we'd be educating in schools, but the rest of the society was proceeding. The sewage plants still weren't fixed. The national parks were being converted. So that's when the idea of using the law came, which actually came here. I came to 
to the University of Washington, first as a Humphrey Fellow, and then stayed to do a master's in public administration. And it was there that I learned about environmental law in the U.S. And I thought, huh, you know, that's a tool we haven't used. And it, I, I sort of felt that I wanted to say no to things, you know, really stand up and say, no, this is not right. In what universe can this be right? And the law seemed a good tool for that. To hold, well, yeah. To if hold you... governments accountable, private sector companies accountable, people who are responsible for making sure sewage treatment plants worked, that they needed to be held to that. So you went back to Jamaica with a new resolve. Well, let's let's try it. Let's use the law. What happened next? So went went home, and pretty soon after I got home, um, Elaw and and Jet wrote a joint proposal to the MacArthur Foundation, which allowed us to hire a first lawyer, so our first staff attorney. And soon after that happened, there was a very beautiful place on the north coast of Jamaica called Pear Tree Bottom which was unique because it had all the sort of attributes of a tropical coastline in a very small area. So it appeared on all these lists as being this valuable place that needed to be protected. And it was also, interestingly enough, the place where the University of the West Indies took all their marine biology students because they could teach them in this one small place about mangroves, rocky shore, seagrasses, coral reefs, and the freshwater marsh that was, you know, behind all of those things. And there was going to be a big Spanish hotel at this place called Pear Tree Bottom. And the first thing that happened was before they had given the environmental permit for the hotel, they cleared the site. And I When you say cleared it? Bulldozed it. Took out all the vegetation, just all the trees, just pushed everything down and then set it on fire. Wow. And so I thought that has got to be against, against the, the law. law. There has to be a <laughs> law against it. Has got to be against the law. And so we decided to go to court and we did um, what is called judicial review under our system where you ask a court to determine whether a government regulator has acted correctly. And we were laughed at, you know. Who laughed at you? Everyone. The newspapers, the cartoonists, even members. What were they saying? saying that, you know, it's not appropriate for a civil society group to go to court against the government. Also that Jamaica needed development. This was going to bring jobs to the area. You know, were we really suggesting that, you know, a large hotel that would bring jobs and economic development should not happen because of mangroves, seagrasses, really? So, and we did go to court and um, we convinced a Queen's Council, a very senior lawyer who was in fact our chairman at the time, to argue the case for us. So our staff attorney did this sort of background work, but the advocate was this very impressive um, Queen's counselor. So at that point, no, people started to be a bit worried. Isn't that right? Isn't that interesting if you can find someone of status, how that can help change the discussion? Yes. So the important people were saying that you were frivolous. And they were asking, how did did we pay this man? You know, of course, he was working pro bono, which no one believed. Did you find supporters? in public for this? And who were your supporters? They when were you went few to and far between at that point. A few and far between at that point. It had never been done before. It was considered outrageously radical. And I remember the opposition um, the chairman, president saying, you know, this is, this is really disgraceful. It's going, to, it's going to discourage investors to Jamaica, you know, or our entire future right, is at right. risk. Right. It's amazing how, how, how loud the claims of economic catastrophe become yes. over uh, something. Yes. And, uh, you know, it was at this place 
was an understated sort of place. It's on the main road along the north coast. So if you're driving to any of the tourist resorts, you will drive right through it. And people hadn't noticed it, you know. They hadn't really noticed it. And and so there was a lot of talk about, well, you know, I didn't know it was there, and so who cares if it's gone? Right, right. Kind of thing. So what happened to the lawsuit? So we won it. And they, it wasn't just a question of winning it because the judge, he had the option to just make a declaration to say, yes, the, um, the environmental agencies had not done their jobs. But he went further. He actually quashed the permit. He said the wow. permit was incorrectly issued. So that really sent shockwaves through the system. And I was away at the time, you know, just one of those things. I was at a conference in Antigua and heard that the judgment was going to be given, handed down when I was away. And I was sort of on my phone waiting and waiting. And then I heard um, that we'd won. And everyone in the room knew about the lawsuit because it was the first time a Caribbean NGO had been to court against the government on an environmental issue. First time a Caribbean NGO had taken on the government in on a lawsuit. An on an environmental wow. issue. Wow. So the whole conference stopped. <laughs> and yes. everyone was jumping up and down and laughing. And then I, when I flew home, so the next day I flew home and on the plane with me, was the chairman of the main environmental regulatory body in Jamaica, the Natural Resources Conservation Authority. And he hadn't heard. And he was in first class. And I, of course, was not. (laughs) So I ran up to him and I told him. And he said, they quashed the permit, Diana? I said, yeah, yeah. So that, I think, was a big change. What what happened? What was the change that resulted from that? What happened then was the hotel that had so far not been a party to the lawsuit, immediately filed a request for the court to hear their their arguments. And so did the environmental impact consultants, because one of the things that ELAW helped us with was to review the environmental impact assessments, which were, you know, big technical documents that a small environmental group probably doesn't have the staff to do all the various aspects. So ELAW had helped us to review it. So the environmental impact consultants, the judge was very scathing about the EIA. They also applied for the courts to hear them. Because they probably felt the reputation had been damaged. Yeah. Yeah. So that that second hearing happened in about two months. And the the judge did agree that to stop the hotel after they'd spent 62 million U.S. dollars, because it was by then up to the third floor. Wow. That the hotel should go ahead. That's pretty extreme to get that type of out, you know, you have to, you can't just march ahead. We're actually going to apply the laws. We're going to stop what you're going to do. And you have to tear down that three stories. Right. That did not happen. That did not happen. He did those strengthen his declarations against the environmental regulatory bodies. And he was very unsympathetic to the EIA consultants. You know, he said that he thought the case had been made out that the, that the EIA had not been sufficiently thorough. And so that changed the EIA process in Jamaica quite a bit, um, in some ways for the for good and some ways for bad. Now, in those days, an environmental impact assessment was 100 pages, reasonably accessible. Now they're almost 500 pages. So in a way, they've over overcompensated and made it much more com- much more complex and harder for a layperson to grapple with. But on the other, on the good side, the entire public process changed. We started to have public meetings being advertised in the newspapers, proper notice periods being given for the, for the public meetings, a, a period of time after the public meeting for the, pu- for the public to comment. Because an applicant probably wanted 
if they were more cautious or conservative, they probably would like to get their ducks in a row before exactly. beginning work. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And and I think the regulatory authority, people often tell me, you know, that they go to apply for something that needs an environmental permit and they get heard, oh, no, we can't do that. We'll get sued. Right. So it did it did change the whole process, but the hotel was built. Okay. Um, so it's the, that beautiful place that everyone called unique on Jamaica's north coast. Yeah. It's no more. So what's next for Jamaica? What's next for the the trust? Well, we've continued to to file legal cases. Um, we have new. We've, we've done something new in the last couple of years, which is we've started to train mining communities. So communities that live in close proximity to mining, either the actual mines or in some cases the refineries. Or what is the what mining occurs in so Jamaica? We have bauxite, which is what makes aluminium, and we have limestone. Jamaica is mostly all limestone, so. We mine for limestone and things like gypsum. So we've been training communities that live in close to these areas how to test their own air, water, and soil. What are the What are the effects on the local communities of the mining? Often dust. So often dust that goes on. They they, they often run run the trucks at night, which I think is a really disgraceful part. I think, you know, if the trucks were operating during a working day and most people in the community perhaps were at work. The, the impacts would not be as great, but they run them late into the night because they want to, I guess, maximize their economic profits. So the people can't sleep. You know, their their homes oh, yeah. are drenched in dust. In, in in the case of one mine, the, um, the tailings from the mine were dumped right across a river. And after a, a bad storm event, because, you know, we live in Jamaica, we're in the hurricane belt. There's, even if there's not an actual hurricane every year, there are always storms. The entire f- community was flooded the tailings block the river, and you know they're very fine tailings from limestone mining, and they just filled up the whole community right up to the eaves, and they had to be dug out, and no one died, I think, because they they got out, but their property was destroyed. So, how did the local communities react? You probably have the same jobs versus the environment argument there as well in those local communities. And some of them work for the actual company. Right. So that's been interesting to navigate. In one community, we have a older man who has worked for the bauxite company all his life. And when he started working with us, he fi- they fired him. And he said it was fine. He was more concerned about the health of his grandchildren than his job. But they hired him back a few months later. And that's really been that particular community has been our success story because he, the, he has reported much better um, air quality monitoring procedures and they you know, building things like scrubbers, which reduce the amount of, of gases that come out. There's they, that community still has an issue with water because, you know, bauxite produces a lot of waste. So for every ton of bauxite that you mine, there's a ton of toxic waste. And these waste, this, this waste is held in a big sort of pond with um, a berm around it, and the berm has been leaking into a nearby river. So that hasn't been solved. But that's one of the things, you see, the regulators deny that it's affecting the river. And so the community wanted to learn how to test their own water quality. When you say the community wanted to learn that, how did you, do you go to the community yourself and meet with folks? We've been working with them for years. They have a community association. So we've been working with them as advocates, you know. So when there was a problem, making sure it got into the media, um, taking photographs, that kind of thing. And then, so, and so we would routinely go and attend their community meetings. And at one of them, they asked us, if we could help them to test the, the water quality because they didn't believe the tests they were getting from government. So we wrote a proposal that was funded by the Amer- Inter-American Foundation. So when you look at the issues in 
Jamaica, what do you view as being the, the biggest challenges you face at the at the trust at trying to get good outcomes? I mean, we've hit on a, a few already, right? Jobs versus the environment, whether the rules are really serious or not. I think I think it is that. I think it is a lack of I mean it's it's kind of trite to say political will. Yeah. But I guess that is the main thing. You know, um, we do have, I think the law is actually, if it was used, because our law is pretty discretionary, but discretion can be exercised in both ways. You know, if you have a discretionary law, you can exercise it in, in, in towards the company or you can exercise it towards the environment. So I think the discretionary law could be used to benefit the environment and it's not. But we, we are sort of the nut in a nutcracker of lack of interest at the top. So among politicians, senior civil servants, private sector leaders who are all on this job, job, jobs, economic development, and a, a society that far too many people don't have the basics. So this is seen as something, you know, that rich countries can afford, not a place like Jamaica. And we, you know, the idea that basically our land is a commodity and something that I see now that is new is, you know, this uh, selling of Jamaican land to investors like the Chinese who now, you know, are building many of our roads and want to put a very large transshipment port in one of our protected areas. That's sort of new over the last five or six years. And the, the society is really split over it. There are people who are saying, no, this is our birthright, this is our heritage, and we should not be dealing with it in this way. But there are another set of people who say, whatever brings a dollar. So how do you get at that? How do you get at that, that cultural aspect of how both the politicians and to some degree portions of the public you know, view the land as a commodity to be exploited for short-term gain? Yeah. What, you know, what, what are the tactics you guys are looking at to deal you know, with this? I, one of the reasons I came to this country to study was because my background was, was arts. You know, my, When I went to school, I did literature and history, and I didn't have a scientific background. And I came to the University of Washington because I wanted to plug that. People used to say about me, oh, her heart's in the right place, but she has no training. So I thought I would come here and do these scientific subjects, and then I'd be able to speak with certainty, you know, and, right, right. and knowledge, yeah. and uh, I'd be right. The scientific authority, yeah. right. And I was one day in a field counting goose poop, and I thought, you know what? I'm not a natural scientist. And over the years, I've realized that actually it's a fight for hearts and minds, you know, it's an ethical question. It's how you feel about place and how you feel about the earth. And so I think the, the tools now are, are art. They are writing. They are music. They are visual arts. They are film. We have to find a way to make people feel these things. So that's what I'm working on now, how to make people feel connected to place. That place is part of their identity, part of their humanity, and it's part of the common heritage of mankind. That's probably one of the biggest challenges we face, and I, I personally think you, you, put a, you put a finger on it. Seattle is not Jamaica, um, and there are many, many differences, I'm sure. But this idea that we subscribe to or believe we have, we have some type of shared narrative about the future, and we do, right? There are things that we can reach to that, that's a shared narrative about the future, but then you discover that there are these other narratives, there's these other stories in which people are being systematically excluded. They're not, they're not included in the wealth that's being created. They're not, they don't receive the full protection of the laws. 
They don't have the same opportunities as other people. And it's that barrier that then prevents people from working together. Right. And you know, but you know, people who sell things know this. They know about how to convince you to want their products, you know. And I don't want to say it like it's yeah. it's it's a different kind of selling, but I think they understand something about the human mind that it is that we do respond to stories. We do respond to emotions. You know, emotion gets a bad rap. But I think if you want to bring about social change, you need to touch people's hearts. And that I think maybe the environmental movement has not been as skilled at that as it needs to be. Because we've we've wanted to occupy the ground of the science, you know. We've wanted right. to say, you know, this is what's right. And now I think we, we much more need to talk to people about what it really means to be a human being. And doesn't that have some connection with our one and only home? So you've been working in this a long time. And you've seen success and you you see the length of time that has to go. And I know this is going to sound like a trite question. Are you hopeful or are you pessimistic? And where do you find hope and and, and where do you not find hope? Depends which day you ask. It's a true <laughs> question. I mean, some days I'm hopeful and some days I'm profoundly pessimistic. The, the hopeful days come when I'm standing in a classroom, you know, with a bunch of young people. And I think this is not this is not a ball we can drop. For, this, for the sake of those young people. Or perhaps someone comes to me, you know, a young person in their, their 25 or so, and they tell me, you came to my school and you talked to us. And I, and I went away and I studied, you know, marine biology or something. Um, or sometimes there are people that we've actually intervened specifically on their behalf, you know, so they have a land title because of work that we did. Or I go to places where, you know, the sewage plant, the very f- the, one of those very first places that I went to that, the untreated sewage was flowing right into the Caribbean Sea, and now a modern sewage plant is being built. The, the the only really modern sewage plant in Jamaica. Then I feel, then I feel hope and I guess pride at at trying to move the ball a bit down the field. You know, even if not necessarily to um, score a goal. But then today the dump is burning. That same dump I went to um, 25 years ago, it still is not properly managed, and those are days of of pessimism. Well, you can, right, it's always tremendously validating when you see that something you worked on actually changed. And you go, well, we can do this, right? Let's get organized, right? We did that, let's do that, and then we can do that, and then you'll get to the end of the road. Um, of course, there is no end of the road, it seems no. like, in activism, is there? No, and I, th- I see my job as bearing witness, so essentially standing up and saying, you have to do this in front of me. And by me, I mean the society, but, you know, by I get it in the media and you have to do this in a, we have, I'm bearing witness. You're not going to be able to do this in quiet, in the quiet. So I see that as part of my job. My part, my job is to raise the issues, you know, my job is to say, no, this is not right. It is not right that people should be unable to sleep because of a mind that's operating until two in the morning. So let's dig into this because when we started this and we were joking about it, you were that environmental woman, Right. I mean, you're the person that stood up and said no. You're the person who stood up and said to other people, you're not doing the right thing. You need to change. How does it make you feel when you get that pushback? You know, what's, what, what emotions do you have when, you, when people start coming at you for doing that? Some, sometimes I'm angry. Sometimes I say to them, look, what, you don't breathe air? It's ridiculous. Your children, you know, why did the, the head of the mining company, he saw me at a meeting and he kind of refused to 
come inside and I said to him, go and live. Are you going to leave your house and go and live with those people? You know, so sometimes I get angry. These days when I've, I've been doing it longer, sometimes my anger is a bit more resigned and wary, whereas it used to be very energized and righteous, you know? Yes. <laughs> so I yes. think that's, those are the things that happen when you've been doing things for a long time because you've sort of seen them, seen them before. Yeah. So, yeah. But, I, you know, I think it is good for people to stand up and say no. There are things to be said no about. Well, you know, I, I sometimes think about it in the sense of nobody likes to be criticized, but don't you need your friends to tell you sometimes when you're messing up? Yes, that's a, that's a good way to look at it. Yeah, <laughs> right. I've never... I mean, I, from my own personal experience, if there's somebody who you know and whose opinion you care about says, you, you, I think you need to do something differently, you may not like it, but you have to listen and you have to change. And that's how we get together. Is, you know, that's how we work together as people. Yeah, and I think be... it's a valuable human attribute, this wish to believe in something and stand up for it. You know, we may not all agree with, uh, with the various things that people choose to stand up for, but it's, again, it's part of being a sort of human social community. So one of the things then in, in talking with you is, you know, you, you made this journey, personal journey from, we just need to educate people. No, now we need to enforce the laws. And that means I've got to stand up and that means I'm going to get criticized. And as you told me, sometimes it's tremendously validating when you can see progress. Other times, it's like, and you're angry. So, what do you say to a young person who wants to get involved in activism? What do you say to them? How, what, what do they need to do to, to do this? And, and should they? Yes, well, I first say that everyone can make a difference and everyone should try. I th- because I, and the other thing I'd say is you want to build a real life for yourself, right? You, you don't want to be just a consumer. We talk a lot, sometimes I think we talk about humans as if they're just consumers of goods and services. But actually you want a, a life that is rich with relationships, with achievements, with failures too, with thinking about what you're doing and with, and with some focus on an ideal. You want to make a real life for yourself because you want to, when you look back on it, on your life, which is going to go so fast. Yeah, it just, it, just so seems to keep, it just seems to keep moving along, doesn't it? You want, you want, those things are the things that are going to sustain you and make you feel you have a life, have had a life well lived. And it'll bring you, it'll bring you amazing relationships, amazing experiences. If, if, if you do certain kinds of things, travel, connections across the globe, and you'll be part of something that's much bigger than yourself. So I like to ask a guest to choose a song to end the end the podcast with something that means something to them, and you picked Harry Belafonte's "Island in the Sun." Why'd yes. you pick it? I picked it because it talks about connection to the island for Harry Belafonte, my same island. He he was born in Jamaica, and it talks about no matter how far you travel, that his island will always be home to me. And that's how I feel about Jamaica. And I think this concept of home, the place where you belong, where they have to take you in <laughs> when you go back there, is a very valuable and profound thing for human beings. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. All my days I will sing in praise of your forest, waters, your shining sand.